Hi, Dave Welch. Glad to be back with you again as we are looking at a new study this uh, semester, uh, at least for several weeks, maybe eight or nine. I'm not sure yet. I never quite know until we get into it. And there's another change I'm making with our study this uh, semester is that I'm going to be offering both as a YouTube video like you've gotten used to and seeing for those of you who have joined in with me. But I'm also going to try to offer it as a podcast, which means that it's strictly audio. The only thing you lose is my beautiful scintillating self in your uh, video, uh, but you will gain potentially a flexibility of being able to listen to it in a car or on a walk on your smartphone and so forth. If you're interested in receiving that, there'll be a graphic up uh, shortly and then at the end of the video today with my email address, which is dwelch at fpcbristol.org. And if you'll send me your interest, I will then send you the link to the podcast. And once you uh, uh, download that, those links should be automatic each week when this video becomes or podcast becomes available. It'll be available for you to listen to. Um, but we're looking or I'm going to, to kind of change pace. I'm still staying in the Old Testament. Uh, now we're going to be looking at the minor prophets. Um, that here's kind of my thinking why I want to do this. One is, uh, ever since I've graduated from seminary, I've always wanted to teach on the Minor Prophets and just haven't had the opportunity on a Wednesday night or a Sunday school. I did some while I was over teaching at King University and really enjoyed that too. Um, my interest in that, to teaching, is that oftentimes this is, these are a collection of, of writings of books that for most of us are overlooked. We just don't take time to read them. They're a little bit odd. Uh, uh, we'll see that as we look at some of those. Um, but, but also, they're very important, I think, in, in the connection between both the Old Testament and the New Testament as they are the, the writings that are occurring about 800 B.C. to, to 500 B.C. <laughs> I'll talk more about that in a minute. But more importantly, even to me, in the midst of our own cultural issues of social justice and, and social realities that are in turmoil, the prophets also were speaking social justice and in the midst of turmoil to God's people. Um, again, I'm going to talk more about what they were saying and, and, and uh, what they were writing and why and all that kind of stuff. Um, and, and the minor prophets, uh, I will share why they're called minor prophets later in today's study as well, uh, are, are quick looks into and um, have for us then some ability to have some conversation about that. But this is my intro. And so before we start, there's a few things that, that I think it's important for us to understand, to at least be aware of in regards to when they were written and why they were written and, and what that may mean for us today. And that's so it's important to understand the history or at least what is known as the golden age of Israel, which is when it was at its most powerful, uh, most influential, most uh, highest level of, of authority in the world. And that's the, the, when we say the golden age of Israel, we're typically speaking of the time of David's kingdom specifically. But for my purposes for our study, it's important for us to recognize the unified kingdom that comes under Saul. And I'm not going to go back to the ancient history. That's, that's a Genesis through uh, Judges and so forth. But but in Saul, we have where the people have demanded and, and God has acquiesced to them to have a one leader. Um, and that's going to be important because it's as the rise of the 
king leader comes up, the rising of the prophet, God's voice to the people that has been lost and diminished by the, the power and authority of the king as opposed to the worship leader previous to that. But this golden age of Israel, as, is, as I'm defining for us, is, is the history of the kingship of Saul, David, who is primary, <coughs> and then David's son, Solomon. And then what happens after Solomon is the kingdom disintegrates. But this is a period of about, uh, at about 1000 BC to, I don't know, 800 BC? Just, <coughs> just to give you a sense. And it's not all that long, but even in our New Testament, the, the looking back is always upon this Davidic kingdom and the promise the covenant God has made with David that's to be carried through the lineage, through Solomon and Rehoboam and so forth, that is so important. And, and always looking back at this was when we were the greatest in the sense of worldly power and authority, this golden age. And, and then it's lifted up. David is lifted up as the epitome of what uh, a follower after God and a leader king was to be like. And even with all his foibles, uh, is heralded and, and lifted up about that. But um, it was after Solomon's death, which is David's son, that the kingdom is divided. It, it loses this unified nature of the 12 tribes. And again, that's, that's ancient history, and that's the Exodus event, and that's the uh, uh, the promise of the covenant and the land and the 12 tribes move in and that's the judges history the 12 tribes now after Solomon's death are going to split and it's going to create two kingdoms a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom and 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 the northern kingdom um, uh, comes about by um, a what is called a superintendent or or Solomon had a person working in his government that had oversight of all the people. And he is, uh, his name is Jeroboam. And at one point, Jeroboam is um, uh, met by a prophet. And the prophet tears up um, a, a scroll, a garment, a, a leather garment that he's wearing, and gives 10 pieces to Jeroboam and keeps two pieces. And, and, uh, both the prophet and Jeroboam interpret this as God is telling him to be a leader. Well, if, if you bring up in your leadership and kingship and you're not of the, the royal family, problems develop. And, and the short history is Jeroboam takes off for Egypt as he's under attack from uh, 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 Solomon's son Rehoboam. Um, and um, uh, eventually... Um, Solomon dies and, and, and Jeroboam comes back. Um, and in so doing, uh, an interesting thing happens. He comes back and, and Solomon's son Rehoboam is coming to the stage and, and is to be approved or voted in by the 12 representatives of the tribes and they are asking because their workload has become so great that they are asking Jeroboam, Solomon's son, to relieve them of this pressure. And 
history records and the Bible records in 1 Kings. And the history of what the, the period of time frame we're looking at is really contained in 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, and then also in 1 and 2 Chronicles. But uh, Jer uh, Rehoboam uh, stupidly responds to their request to lighten their loads um, that had been imposed upon the people under Solomon. But he responds, um, What share do you have in David? You have no inheritance to your tents, to your house. Um, he will not lighten the load and, and promises instead to make it more difficult for them. <clears throat> and, and with that, the nation splits. Jeroboam has come back. He is seen as a, a protector, as one who will relieve the people. And he takes the ten tribes into the northern kingdom, becomes the northern kingdom. And Rehoboam is left with just two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Um, now, the, the interesting thing that begins happening here, and this is why it's important because the material we're going to be reading with the Minor Prophets is about, comes about during and after this period. So, that Rehoboam takes the two Judah and Benjamin, which are important for us to remember because the covenant remains in the line of David, remains through Judah, and we'll pick that up again in the New Testament. But the, the northern kingdom lasts for about 200 years. And this is where it gets really kind of complicated because the northern kingdom is now known as Israel and the southern kingdom is known as Judah. And the northern kingdom goes through and it lasts for about 200 years until Assyria, the nation, comes and destroys it in about 722 BC. And as you've heard me say before, Assyria does an interesting thing when it conquers a, a nation. It moves out its people and brings in other people whom it has conquered to live in there. And so it creates this intermarriaging issue. Um, and the other thing that happens with the northern kingdom is that they go through a wave of kings, some 19 different kings out of five different dynasties or families. Um, and even though it is really <coughs> the wealthier, more prosperous of the two kingdoms, <clears throat> it it um, has had it had several different capitals, but the most prominent one that we know and remember, and it's why in the New Testament we pick up the name Samaria because that was its most powerful capital, and that's who it became known as the Samaritans. But they had a major problem in terms of theology and uh, Jewish Bible understanding, and that was. Because they had split off from the southern kingdom, they could not and would not, the kings would not allow people to go back into Jerusalem, which is now in the southern kingdom, for worship, <coughs> for sacrifice. The very focus of what it means to be Jewish. And so, uh, early on, what the kings did is they created a rival temple, opportunity for the northern kingdom people to worship and they had priests and interestingly they also then conscripted the use of the golden calf that we have in Exodus um, and it became a false worship location and false worship 
of an idol, the calf. And then as the kingdom grew and aged, um, it also began to assimilate the practices of the Canaanites in the land of which it had taken, which was primary Baal worship, the calf again, um, and, and basically just became worse and worse than if, uh, in regards to its theological orientation. It may have been very financially and economically powerful, but from the biblical standpoint, its, it's uh, relationship and covenantal connection <coughs> to God has been forfeited. And then when Assyria comes in and takes it over, um, it, you know, the, the faithful would say it's their just comeuppance. But the reality is that the um, worship practices become even more assimilated in with Canaanism, Canaanites, and Baalism. Now, that's the northern kingdom. So what we're going to see in our readings is many of the prophets, minor prophets that we have, are writing specifically to indict the sins of the northern kingdom. <coughs> Especially, <coughs> excuse me, still getting over my COVID. Especially in relationship to their worship practices. But in the southern kingdom, we have the two tribes that are still existing, Judah and Benjamin. And remember, if you go way back into Exodus, these are uh, Rachel's uh, lineage and her favorites. And and uh, Jacob's favorites, but, but that's not really playing up here. But the southern kingdom lasts <coughs> for <coughs> maybe 150 more years than the northern kingdom. Its full extent is about 335 years until it falls um, in 587, 586 to the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. <coughs> and again, for a confusing for us, currently, the southern kingdom is known as the kingdom of Judah. <clears throat> and like the northern kingdom, it had about 20 different kings and actually had one queen. And all of their lineage came specifically through the line of David, obviously because of the tribe of Judah. Um, <clears throat> and then interestingly, history will record pretty much about every other king is lifted up as a good king. And, and basically in the Old Testament, to be a good king in Judah meant that you tried to get rid of all the idol worship and the construction of, of locations of not temples, but more huts and so forth for Baal worship and others. And if a king tried to remove those and tried to reinstitute worship in Jerusalem only, they were known as a good king. And about every other generation did really well, and then the next generation would forget or slide back, and they'd be known as a bad king. But finally, in 587, 586, when Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, comes in and conquers <coughs> Jerusalem, they, um, in that conquering, completely fall, the temple falls, the walls of Jerusalem fall, and we have our minor prophets that we're looking at also are writing about that for consolation, for concern, as well as indictment over the, the sinfulness of Judah for its failure also to remove those idol worship and places of worship. 
and not until uh, the Medes and the Persians come in and destroy Babylon does uh, uh, the, the remnant allowed to, to go back and rebuild the temple. The difference between the way Babylon conquered was it left the people there but took out just the, the, the best of the best or the brightest of the best or the ones who could be eventually politicians or so forth and they were taken back or into Babylon and, and the story of Daniel where uh, we get to see that we're not going to look at that in our studies but um, to be groomed to be leaders but uh, the, the Medes and the Persians conquer Babylon and in so doing those uh, that's the story of Ezra and Nehemiah where they are invited to go back into their homeland, Judah, and to rebuild the temple, rebuild the wall around Jerusalem. And again, we have a lot of our prophets are writing as that takes place. Now, that's a real brief, quick look at some of the history. And, and for those of you on the YouTube, I'll have a graphic up to see that, um, to see also which prophets are writing at what period. Because you have several that are writing to get not not together, but they're writing at the same time. Some for the northern kingdom, for some for the southern kingdom. So hopefully my graphic is there. We may refer back to it again later. I just want you to see um, when each writer was taking place, and and it's also important as we begin our work looking at that is that we were mindful of the fact that our canon, our our books of the Bible, as we have them weren't put in here chronologically. Uh, that's how often, that's how we think of pieces being written now. We have a chronological approach to almost all our historical approach to our writing. The Bible is organized, at least in our uh, Protestant and most of the Catholic Bible also, is, is organized differently. It's organized as collections of writings. So the first part of the Bible, we have the first five books are the Torah, the law, the, the gift of Moses, and so they're collected. And then we have this large swath of historical books of Joshua and Judges and 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd King, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther that I've sort of referred to. And even I'll step back a little bit further. In the Jewish canon, most of those are put together. So you don't have 1st and 2nd Samuel, you have Samuel and kings and so forth. It's the Reformed Protestant canon that began to split those apart as well as the Catholic canon. But, so after this historical collection of books, we have the wisdom collection of books, which is where we were looking at last semester with the Psalms. But you have Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. And then you have the prophetic books that we are looking at sort of, but even those prophetic books are divided into major and minor. And, and that's not to, to be uh, relegated to important and unimportant, but has to do with the length of the book. And so you have your uh, uh, prophets of uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah, Lamentations, which is considered to be a prophetic book, and Ezekiel and Daniel that are very long. And so they're uh, the writing prophets that are known as the major prophets. And then you may be saying, well, what about Elijah and Elisha? Well, they're prophets also, but they weren't writing prophets. And they were much earlier um, at the time of Solomon, David, and Saul. 
And in this prophetic collection, then we have these 12 prophets, again, that are not collected historically, historically or chronologically but they're in our collection from longest to shortest and that's the 12 minor prophets that's the 12 that i want us to kind of look at and think about and have some uh conversation about this semester and keeping in mind that as well when they are writing is in this period of judah and the um, samaria the northern kingdom israel in the midst of their movement into and out of exile. And so one of the things that these prophets are very concerned about is, as I've already said, is the right worship of God's people to God and the indictment upon these different kings and kingdoms for their failure to do that. But they're writing also in an incredibly turbulent time. And so they are voicing both God's... Um, uh, statements to, to God's people, but they are also voicing the concern of the people of the question of how have they wound up in exile? Uh, has God forgotten his people? What about the covenant, the promise of God for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and Israel and, and the promise of David and the faithfulness of that? So they're responding to those both in the sense of for the mouthpiece for God and the mouthpiece for God's people. They're also asking the people about what about your faithfulness in the midst of all that's taking place. Um, they're also asking an important question because of uh, uh, the Babylon's God Marduk. Is God as powerful? Um, and ultimately, it's, it's a question that they are responding to God's people of faithfulness. How to maintain faith in Yahweh. Uh, so that's kind of a, a primer about the generalized writing of what they're going to do. Um, two other things I want to just briefly share, and that's the image, the idea of, in Hebrew, prophet comes from two words in Hebrew. One is nabi, which is the more common one. And that just literally means one who is called. So you can see being a prophet is called by God. Uh, one who speaks for another. And of course, that's much of what the prophets are doing, speaking for God to God's people about their sinfulness. And what we're going to see also is the people's failure to be in covenant relationship with God that's lived out in relationship with others as a failure of that. And then the other word in Hebrew um, and you can see its connection, if I can pronounce it right, rocher, uh, its connection with Holy Spirit, ruach, uh, is one uh, who sees history and the present and future from a divine perspective, the connection to the Holy Spirit, as we would say, or to God's presence. And this rocher is the prophet that had the sense of prophet that has the ethical, moral, and religious concerns of God to be spoken to God's people. Um, and I want to dissuade you from the idea that, that prophets are always speaking about future. They're not. 80% of what the prophets write about really is, is a present reality for the people, and it's not a future reality. Now, there is some of that future orientation uh, in response to the failure of the people and, and, and what will be the consequence of that. But the primary focus comes about seeing what's going on 
hearing God's message and sharing that with God's people. Um, and that primary focus is to invite or encourage or to exhort God's people to be restored in their relationship with God. Um, so perhaps it's better to think of them as offering insight rather than foresight. And the question always comes, well, how do they get their message? And, and we see that, that, and we may not read it, but we're going to see, I hope, we'll let me talk about it a little more, that the message from God comes to them through meditation, through prayer, and through reflection, also by direct communication by God. Uh, we see the message, and sometimes we hear this has come from God, but many times we interpret that they, they are in relationship with God and through meditation, reflection, and study, get that message. Um, so that especially in our look at the minor prophets, these prophets become, are very public figures. But they come from a breadth of callings. Some have been uh, poets. Some have been professional preachers or professional religious uh, uh, priests or workers in the court. Some were teachers. Malachi is a teacher. Others were um, common work people. They, they tended to sheep or they tended to the olive trees. And, and so they come from a wide span of life. Um, but they become God's mouthpiece and become called by God for God's people for that purposes that I've already expressed. Well, that's a lot of information, a lot of history that's going off really fast. Um, as I said, there's some graphics that I'll include with that. Um, next week, we're going to start looking at the first <coughs> minor prophet in the canon. But it's the first because it's the longest, and it's Hosea. And I'll have a lot more to say next week about that and our look at that. And, and um, uh, we, my encouragement for you would be, go ahead and read the book of Hosea before next week. It's, you know, it's all six, seven pages in my Bible and maybe a few more in yours or maybe less if you've got uh, smaller print. <coughs> so that we can begin talking about it. And, and you're going to see, uh, especially in Hosea, the social concern of God for God's relationship with God's people and why that's been forfeited. That's enough for this week. But I am going to close this in prayer in our preparation for next week. So here we go. Father, as we embark on this new kind of study, <coughs> praying for the gift of your spirit that will lead us through it, that as I often and always regularly say, have that which is of value for our relationship and our life with you be remembered and discard the other from whatever I may say. So prepare us. Make us like a, a rich, fertile land to hear your word upcoming so that we might be fruitful in who we are and our love of you. Praying all this in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. See you next week. And again, please, if you'd like to have this as an audio versus a video that you might be able to have access to at different times in, in, in a regular form, please email me and I'll send you that link. Thank you.